Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. So, let's begin with prayer. Welcome, everybody. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless our study of your Word, that um, in in the Word you have revealed your Son, Jesus Christ, and namely His salvation for us. We ask that as we enter the holy season of Lent, that you would reveal to us how his suffering and death is the full and complete remission of all our sins. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, we finished up last week. Mr. Lazarus, you see, unbind him and let him go. And then it jumps to verse 45. Um, and there's a paragraph break here in the ESV but it's a little, did we talk about paragraph breaks and punctuation? All right, in the Greek New Testament, it's just blocks. There's no punctuation and there's like no like exclamation points, commas, periods, and no paragraph breaks. It just, it's like one big run-on sentence. And you have to just figure it out by reading it, which means that when we translate these things into English, we have to kind of interpolate what we think is, um, you know, where things start and begin. So, um, so this is meant to just keep flowing into the next part. So let's actually read. Uh, yeah, I think we should read through 53. So. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus was wrong. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered counsel and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. We let him go on like this. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this to the Lord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied. Good. Hold up right there. So this sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Pharisees and the, the council. Uh, the word for council is usually translated as Sanhedrin. It's not translated. It's Sanhedrin. Yeah. And the Sanhedrin, um, it's kind of a, a broad term. And I, I gave you a definition in there somewhere uh, on the sheet. Uh, yeah. I don't know where I put it. I had to prepare these earlier in the week because I was gone. Oh, there it is. It's in the second paragraph. Uh, They are members of the family and officials working together um, as the Sanhedrin with the high priest. All right, so there's the high priest, and then there's his family, which are also priests, because remember the priests come from the house or the order of 
yeah, Levi, right? So they're from the tribe of Levi. So then other family members and then other kind of royal officials. And they all together are like this ruling council. Um, which is very much like our congregation, right? Because you've got elders and trustees and, and then the pastor who I guess is the high priest. That's a joke. And then, <laughs> um, because you're all priests actually um, as well, so that it doesn't quite work out. And then, um, yeah, so anyway, a council, right? And, but the high priest is really the guy in charge. And uh, uh, while, we're, while I'm talking about it, Caiaphas in verse 49, who was high priest that year, said to them, um, the actual dates for Caiaphas, as far as being high priest, he was high priest from AD 18 all the way to AD 36, so for 18 years. So that expression in John that he was high priest that year is kind of curious, right? Because they're not changing high priests every year. He was high priest for a long time. You can read, he's high priest into the book of Acts, into the ministry of the apostles. And I think I gave you some citations of that, like Acts 4. Um, what, what John is referring to there is that, um, I think, is that he's referring to that year being that, if you like, fateful year, right? Or that, which is then related to Jesus' expressions of that day and the hour, right? So this is the, this is the year, this is the day, this is the hour of the Lord's choosing, um, namely that he suffer and die. So maybe that's the way to understand this expression because the historic data doesn't back up that he was only high priest for one year, right? He was high priest for 18 18 years. So that, uh, just a nice expression. All right, now going back to the beginning. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come to Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Now, here, remember, usually in John's Gospel, the Jews refers to those ruling authorities, right? But here, um, for whatever reason, it's referring maybe to those ruling authorities, or it's referring to those who were friends of Lazarus, or, or um, acquaintances, or, you know, fellow important people, because Lazarus was an important guy, that came out uh, to his funeral to, after his burial. Uh, so many of them did believe in him, but some of them went back and reported. Now, are they trying to get Jesus in trouble? I don't think so. I don't think so. They go back and they report uh, what he did, what he had done. Why? Because they believed in him. And this is, faith can't help, but but actually be shared, right? When, I mean, when you receive good news, you, like, you know, what, what uh, you've had a child, your child was born, right? You send out cards, you post it on Facebook, you, you call up grandma, you call up everybody and let them know, you know, baby's born, you know, what? Name, weight, length, what else do I have to say? Color, <laughs> you know. Send a picture. Oh, he's cute or she's cute. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing. I mean, this is great news for them. They've never seen anything like this. A man being raised from the dead after four days, um, which it's possible that people had been buried alive, by the way. <laughs> this is why they don't seal the tomb until after three days, um, usually, because, you know, they kind of, they're comatose and then they come out of it. But... That's a side note. Um, the four days thing, well, he stinks, so it's, it's clear he's actually dead. So um, they tell him because it's great good news. That's what I would suggest is going on here. But as we learned back in chapter 5, right, um, 5 verse 15, I wrote, 
and then also in chapter 7 and chapter 9, the Pharisees have been getting increasingly, increasingly um, antagonistic to Jesus. And, I mean, he's undermining uh, their power. Not their authority, although they have authority, but namely the power that they perceive they have over the people. You know, because everybody's coming out to them, out to him. And word is getting around about him. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, all right, and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now this is unique to John's gospel, so it's probably worth referring to. Everyone will believe in him, but then that's going to actually cause the Romans to get involved. Huh. Can you explain? Why would, this, why would the Romans get involved if everyone's following after Jesus? What's the issue with Jesus being like everyone flocking to him? Yeah, he's, well, he's gaining not only power, but authority. Right? People respect him and they honor him. They listen to him. And power then, if you like, is centralized in one guy who happens to not have an agreement with the Romans. <laughs> you see? So this is, this is the, the conceit in the, of, the, of the Pharisees. And the, they say, we have no... Remember, Jesus went over this, which I don't remember which chapter. You know, we have no... Um, you know, we're children of Abraham, right? We have, we have no other... No, we're under no one else's authority. And Jesus like... You're kidding yourselves. One, you're under the devil's authority. But two, as we'll hear later on in the trial, they even, they even say, we have no king but Caesar. Right? Um, so they, while they say they, they trust in God above all things, they actually trust in their own power that they've received, delivered, been delivered to them by the Romans. We talked about this in Thursday Bible class, but it was one of the reasons why the Roman Empire was so expansive. Is that, is that they worked, they, always, they collaborated with the local religious people and, and ruling authorities. They didn't just come in and you know, unseat. They would put people of their, that, that were willing to collaborate or cooperate with them in, their, in the positions of authority. And in this case, it's actually those who are there to deliver the forgiveness of sins to God's people <laughs> who, who actually end up you know, saying, well, you know what, we can work with the Romans on this one. Um, we talked about this in regards to Daniel, right? Where Daniel's pretty clever about it, where he, or wise, I would say, is that he doesn't just come out and offend Nebuchadnezzar, but he, um, you know, he kind of comes up alongside Nebuchadnezzar and figures out a way to not offend him, but, but also kind of gently guide him to the truth. Um, or at least, you know, to, to stand off from just, you know, uh, refusing to let Daniel and his three friends worship the true God. All right. So maybe that's what's, how this started, is that the, these, you know, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they came alongside Rome and they said better to, better to cooperate and graduate in a sense. <laughs> you know? Don't, let's not fight the Romans. Let's just, they'll let us be Jews as long as we don't push back too hard. Right? So we'll pay our taxes and we'll put the statues of Caesar up. It's okay. It's fine. Um, but now it's to the point where like, they're so, they've been so intertwined with, with the, the Roman government that they, they can't actually see themselves as being Jews without the Romans anymore. You see how that works? Um, 
what do we call this? It's being unequally yoked. <laughs> um, we've been discussing this in regards to the school as far as like um, enrolling in a, in a state program, Ch choice, right? And it's one of the concerns with choice is that if you put all your eggs in that basket, not only financially, but you know, if you submit yourself to whatever rules and, and uh, requirements they have, um, at what point does that actually mean that they then have authority over you, right? And, um, and they'll say, I mean, we know this with tax exempt status, this is gonna happen too, is at what point do we, are we willing, to, are we actually willing to say, yeah, fine, we'll, play we'll pay you taxes so that we have, we can maintain our freedom to preach, right? If that's what they demand. Right now we can preach, you know, what we believe without, a, without, um, without legal ramifications for the most part. Um, but at some point it may be that if we reject, you know, say some social agenda that they say, well, you can no longer be a nonprofit organization. We won't recognize you. Are we willing to, to, to break off that, you know, and, and suffer the economic consequence for the sake of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel? And I think that's what's happening here. They're not willing to forfeit the power they have in order to speak the truth. If the Romans, you know, put their thumb on, they're just gonna capitulate to the Romans because they'd rather be in charge and have that power. So they'll take away our place. And by place here, you could, you could think it's Jerusalem in the temple. I think I suggested that on the notes. What verse is that, 48? Um, yeah, the temple. And the, you'll see it referred to as the place in Acts 6 and Acts 21. Um, it could be, though, it's also their station or their, their place in society. Right? They'll take away our authority um, and our nation, so, which actually ends up happening anyway. <laughs> they, they dissolve the, the Jewish state, um, and it's not restored again until after World War II. <laughs> All right, so the Romans do that. Uh, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, isn't that a funny thing to say about Jesus? If we let him go on like this. As if, as if you can contain Jesus, right? Um, I love the way C.S. Lewis refers to, to, to Aslan, who's the type of Jesus in the Narnia. You know, he, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. <laughs> I mean, you, Jesus is going to break out of whatever, you know, sort of boxes you try to put him in, you know. He won't suffer, um, you know, to be... To be what do you want to say? Well, he will suffer it for a while, but you know, it will, ultimately the gospel always will break out, even if you try to set Jesus in this box and say, you know, Jesus is the friend of, name your social you know, um, class. So, it's, that's kind of a conceited statement to say, as if you're gonna be able um, to restrain him from doing what Jesus does. Of course, they don't believe that. They think of him as just a man. And that actually what ends up killing him, in part, or the reasons why they kill him, one of them is that he claims to be, to be God. Right. All right. Good so far? All right. So, one of them, Caiaphas. Now, this, is the, this isn't, is this the first time he's mentioned? I don't think so. Uh, nope, it is the first time he's mentioned. So now Caiaphas enters this, the scene. And I think it's the reason why Caiaphas comes in now is because of that statement, that political statement. This is really the first time that the politics of, 
the Jewish state and the Roman state have also been introduced, which of course then play out very vividly here in the, in the trial of Jesus, where he's tried by both the Sanhedrin and by the Roman government, right? Because there's, it, it's like in England, I don't know if you know this, in England they have, there's two court systems that run parallel. There's the, the English court system, and then there's the, the Muslim court system, which is called Sharia law, right? So, so actually, if you're a Muslim in England, you can say, uh, I'm a Muslim, and I don't submit to your English law. I submit, I'm submitted to the Sharia law, and then the Sharia courts will try you. And, and then they're the... So they, I don't know if this is actually played out, but I mean, there's laws that are on, on, in the Sharia law from the Quran that, that actually would require like, various kinds of execution, <laughs> hanging, beheading, I don't know if that ever happens in England under Sharia law, but uh, how, that, how those two things interplay, I'm not really sure, but there's two parallel law systems going uh, because of that collaboration between the Jewish state and the Roman state here. All right. So Caiaphas comes in, and you find out that he's not just the chief priest, but he's also the, really a political figure. Right? So uh, we've seen where pastor, this, in this case, the, the big pastor has gotten confused. Um, much like the Pope was in the Middle Ages, right? And, you know, where he was both head of church and head of state. All right, of the Holy Roman Empire. All right, who was high priest that year? He said to them, you know nothing at all. Which is pretty, uh, you idiots. <laughs> I think it's how it is. I mean, he's in, yeah, exactly, he's insulting them. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he's going to say it again at the trial. It's in chapter 18, I think. And uh, what an incredible statement. You, you guys don't know anything. This is, this is how it's going to go down. And uh, um, there's that you know, blessed irony here in saying that one man should die for the people lest the whole nation perish. Because that's exactly who Jesus is. Right? One man who dies so that you, his nation, his kingdom, will not perish. Well, actually, you're brought into his kingdom. Right? His blood be upon us and upon our children. That they'll say later on, too. Isn't that incredible? So little does he know um, that, <laughs> that he's actually a prophet here. As high priest, he's actually fulfilling a prophetic uh, role. Maybe it's interesting to talk, or maybe it's worth mentioning. I got to think who this was. Bernard of Clairvaux. He said that um, while God knows all things, He does not cause all things. All right. Uh, and what he means is, is that in God's foreknowledge, He knows all the possible futures. He knows all your possible choices. You know, and if you want to think metaphys or metaphysically, yeah. Um, you know, he knows about all the various versions of you and, and all the possible you know, outcomes that can happen. And he, and he works within your choices for the same common goal, right? Um, he, does not, he does not remove from you the will to, to make choices and to take actions. But he uses your will, he uses your choices for the good of, of both you and for all people, namely that you believe in him for faith. All right? That doesn't mean he causes all things. 
right? Um, because then, then that would beg the question, if he can cause you to believe, or what do you want to say, if he can cause you to do, to, do good, then can, does he not also cause evil and cause you know, um, great suffering in this world? He uses great suffering and cause, but the cause of evil, the cause of sin, is the human heart. Okay? We're responsible for everything that we see that's wrong in this world in some way. Maybe not personally, um, but corporately as humanity. But God works all those things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right? He knows what is happening. And you know, think about the way that the devil approaches, um, Satan approaches God to, to torment Job. Okay? Does, I mean, the devil has to ask God's permission to afflict Job. Right? Does God cause the affliction of Job? No. Does he know it? Yes. Which is maybe a nuance, um, but what we're doing there is saying that, that God can use not only the good things of this world, well, there, if there is any such thing, which is a whole other story, <laughs> but he can even use your suffering for his benefit. He can even use pain. He can use death. He can use captivity and bondage and slavery in Egypt. He uses all of this for the sake of faith that we would trust in him. He even uses, like, we, this was our reading, uh, oh, in the third and fourth grade class this week, with the golden calf. You know, like, Moses is coming down to give them the law, and obviously it takes a while because the law is like seven, seven chapters. <laughs> so God has, you know, it takes a little while to communicate all this to, to Moses. And, you know, Moses has to commit it to memory. Then he comes down with just the, the ten commands, the ten words on tablets, and he sees the golden calf. Um, and of course, that brings about great rebuke. But it's there for the sake of faith. Because they need to hear again that, isn't that God who delivered you from bondage and slavery in Egypt? Isn't it God who's been taking care of you the whole time? And you've forgotten him, right? And as evidenced by your making a fashioning of a calf out of gold and not defending Aaron, for example, not doing his job and defending the people from unbelief because he's a priest. So there's that. All right, so I got off on the beaten path a little bit there. But, but again, he, he is the prophet. As John says, so he does a little side, sidebar here, which we've had from John a few times, where he gives us a little commentary, right? So now the author writes, the evangelist, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> wow. And not for the nation only, but here's where it gets really remarkable. So John's pushing forward to show you where this is all going. Just a little side note here, not just for Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Right? So this is the inclusion not only of the, Greek, or the Jews who have been scattered throughout the world, but it'll actually include the Gentiles. And then here's the big turning point in the narrative. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. All right? they're, they're, the council is now of one accord under the prophecy here or the, the direction of Caiaphas. Everybody, this, every, the whole narrative is going to be turned towards Jesus, towards them trying to kill Jesus. And it's not that they haven't thought about it before, um, but it hasn't been their chief aim or goal. All right. 
Um, so that side note is pretty interesting, and I gave you some citations about it. Um, you see that's the fourth paragraph. The evangelist inserts a, common, uh, a comment, I was typing this early in the morning, in Fort Wayne in a hotel, so. Yeah, made a mistake and I don't have a pen. Whatever. Uh, the evangelist inserts a comment to focus the entire direction of the story. Caiaphas bears responsibility for his evil purpose. Yet despite his motive, Caiaphas is confessing the deeper evangelical truth that Jesus was to die for the salvation of his people. Vicariously, that's the stand in place of, vicariously as the one given for the many. It's the tragic irony that Caiaphas, against his knowledge and intention, appears as the prophet. Israel's highest official, with all the authority attached to his office, speaks of Jesus' death as the only way in which the people could be saved. And he doesn't even know it. <laughs> oh, that you knew what you were saying. The evangelist adds to this prophecy, here's what we just read, showing its broader application. So you can see this in like Isaiah 49, verse 6. Are you there, Ethan? What verse are you... Are you going back? He's looking at other notes. Okay. All right. I'll just jump there. Indeed, he says, it is, too, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, plural, see, nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer. So Isaiah 49.6, and then what was another citation I give you? Um, oh yeah, Acts. There should be a T in that. No, no chance to proofread, so you just have to deal with the typos. All right, here we go. So this is uh, probably Peter. There he is. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come to Peter, with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Huh. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now this is a big deal with Peter, because Peter, Peter's not on board with the ministry of the Gentiles. I mean, he's antagonistic to, to, to St. Paul. He makes Paul do his ministry in Damascus. Finally, with the Jerusalem Council, which just comes up here in a minute, you know, they, they'll at least discuss, but they, they basically agree to disagree. And Peter's account of what happened and Paul's account of what happened actually don't quite agree, <laughs> which is great, right? When, when, when these two guys get together and then they come to a council and they come to an agreement and then they walk away actually having a different impression of what actually happened. 
But basically, they allow Paul to do his ministry to the Gentiles, just stay away from Jerusalem. And James and Peter stay in Jerusalem, ministering there. And they just kind of agree to disagree. And then actually Jerusalem ends up destroyed and those people end up scattered into all the churches that Paul ministered to and, you know, basically planted. So, <laughs> so irony of ironies there. But Peter's not on board. And over and over this happens. Peter refuses to baptize Cornelius, right? But then the Holy Spirit comes upon him and they confess the faith. Peter's like, what, what is going on here? These, why are these Gentiles confessing the truth? So that, um, I guess we'll just call it an ethnic bias, is so deeply ingrained, you know, Jews first, but they forget and also to the Gentiles, right? Um, so that's, that's going on too, and I think John is very careful to remind us about that back in, get back to it here, back to our text, right? Uh, oh, I didn't go far enough down, sorry not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. We confess this pretty vividly in the Nicene Creed, don't we? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, spoke by the prophet. prophets. Okay, what comes next? I tried to start, because I was trying to jump in, I couldn't do it. All right, we'll just use it. Spoke by the prophets, I believe, and here we go. I believe in one holy uh, Catholic, it says in small print down at the bottom, which we'll explain in a minute, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead in the world, life of the world to come. So one baptism, one church. And, and the reason why Catholic matters there is because, because Catholic actually means from the whole earth of the whole of people, right? So that there's only one Christian church on earth. I know, the small C, big C. I just, I know what you're trying to do. Um, it's actually kind of an artificial distinction. We could use a big C, but it would confuse people when they think Roman Catholic Church. Right. So, but, but it does mean um, of the whole, Catholica in, in uh, Latin. So, mm. and I mean, that's the mission of the church. It's for the whole world. And we actually confess that in the creed. Um, although, um, by the way, even before the Reformation, mo many of the Germans, you know, so Luther inherited this, were already saying Christlicka instead of Katholische in German. So the Nicene Creed had already changed even before Luther to be Christian and not Catholic among the Germans. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, <laughs> but they had made that. They, the Germans thought of uh, Christian and Katholische as being synonymous, it appears. But that's another, that's a side note. All right, hmm. anything else I wanted to read there? Uh, the statement repeats the motif that we heard in John 10 of a shepherd who gathers into one flock the scattered sheep, as he said, including other sheep that are not of this fold, right? He kind of threw that statement out back in chapter 10. It didn't qualify it very much. He just said it, and then we just, the narrative just moved on. Well, now we're seeing John say, okay, that's what's going on here. He's going to gather all, all his lost sheep. Which, of course, alludes to Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, which have to do with the shepherd motif, as well as Isaiah 43, which you can look up on your own, yeah, in the interest of time. Uh, note that how he is drawing all people to himself, where? In his death, all right? Uh, this is really important because sometimes people think, 
uh, even well-intentioned well Lutherans, that the key to gathering and sustaining and growing the church um, is activities. Right? We just need more things to do. That could be mission trips, that can be you know, mercy work, um, or it could just be fellowship activities. And all of those things are, are, are pleasing to God and they're actually good uh, for us um, to love one another, to have you know, venues where we can care for one another and care for our neighbors. That isn't what gathers the church, though. It's a fruit of the gathering of the church. It's the fruit of faith. Oh, I'm so quiet this week. <laughs> right? So the, the nations are going to be gathered through the suffering and death of Jesus for sins. That's what actually gathers the church. Or, you know, how does Luther say it in the third article? Calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. Not um, in some calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the Christian church through social activities and what? Mercy work and, well, I don't know, bowling leagues <laughs> or something, right? What? Dartball league? Yeah, dartball. You, have, you used to play dartball up here, right? Yeah, yeah. We had dartball in, in northwest Indiana. It was still thriving and active. Well, it wasn't as thriving and active as it used to be, but apparently the Indiana board looked different than the Illinois board. So if you went across the state line, the board was different and the rules were different. And you're like, oh my goodness. Well, it used to be bowling wasn't quite as unified as it is now too, right? With nine pins and everything. There were other numbers of pins and ways of scoring and all of that. All right. I don't know how that came up. The only source of unity and nation, all right, is the new people of God, which we saw in John 10, John 12, um, and Psalm 22. Well, might as well look at that. That's the psalm for Monday Thursday, 22 verse 27. All right, so this is, this is the, the psalm, you know, Jesus prays from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? But notice towards the end of it, which is beautiful, First, I say 27. Okay, I went too far up here. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. This is all our response to what he has done upon the cross, which is the first part of the psalm, the bulk of the psalm. My vows I will perform before those who fear them. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. There's that Catholic word right there, the ends of the earth. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Right. We're praying this as the altar is being stripped. Which seems kind of counterintuitive, but it's, it's certainly setting us up for Friday on Thursday night. Which is Friday, by the way, in the Jewish calendar, but that's another story for another day. All right. Then, um, I did make a note here on the sheet about his summary. So they made plans from that day. So now we have a time indication. So we had year, day, that they made plans to put him to death. Right? And so um, he's been taught, Jesus has been using the time indication of hour. The hour, it was not yet his hour back in chapter two. Right? Woman, don't you know it is not, my time has, did he say time in chapter two? Yeah, my time has not yet come. And then Mary says, do whatever he tells you, water into wine and the rest, but we also see it in verse four, in chapter four, chapter seven. Um, so now is actually the day. Now is the hour. Now is the time. Now is the year. 
all of it. Um, and so John has this idea, and we talked about it way back in our introduction uh, about you know, 11 months ago, that all human history has been, has been working towards this moment. It's all been leading towards this moment. God has been use, giving faith, using, um, choosing, if you like, electing prophets, of, prophets and patriarchs you know, for the sake of salvation. The promise made to Adam and Eve has been worked out and, and now is the time where the, where the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Really beautiful. Right? And then all history will spin out from the cross as well. Um, now, there's also a statement here from John in verse 54, which we haven't read yet. Somebody wonder, should we actually... Uh, yeah, we should have read that before. Let's just read... 54, and then talk about that, and then we'll move on. I'll read it. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, we don't know much about this town of Ephraim. I, I give you a note, um, 2 Corinthians 13, 19. Um, it's usually suggested by most of the commentators I looked at, excuse me, the ones I looked at, that it's about 20 kilometers um, north east of Jerusalem, so it's quite a ways away, um, and that he, from, from the resurrection of Lazarus, and then uh, until the actual moment of the Passover, he hangs out in Ephraim. Now, Ephraim's in the wilderness, it tells us that, um, which is a lovely bookend to where we began the story, which was with, where? How, who did we start with? Yeah, the Jordan with John, right, which is, you know, right on the edge of the wilderness. So we started the wilderness, and maybe if you think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke too, Jesus is baptized, we'll hear this next week, and then the Spirit casts him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So it begins with the, with the wilderness, and then here, we go back to the wilderness. Um, again, this is a lot like with Lazarus, where he delays to coming to Bethany, right? And we talked about this at length the last couple of weeks, about how that delay was for the purpose of, of the resurrection, for the purpose of faith. Right. Um, while he could have healed Lazarus, he, he elected to allow Lazarus to experience death um, for the sake of confessing the resurrection. And ultimately, I think that's the... In John's Gospel, it's different. Where, Like in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the, it's the cleansing of the temple that really irritates the uh, chief priests. We already had the cleansing of the temple back in the end of chapter 2, wasn't it? where he cleanses the temple after the wedding at Cana. Um, so that's not the thing that really irritates them. In this gospel, the thing that really gets them upset is actually the raising of Lazarus. Yeah, is that he, he gives resurrection. So the thing that scandalizes them more than anything is that he has power over death. The very thing that saves you. <laughs> right? Let's talk about, again, more irony. So John has a little bit different kind of direction with that. So again, he's going to delay, um, just like his, uh, his disciples had warned him before, don't go to Judea, don't go to Bethany, it's too close to Jerusalem, things are going to get a little you know, challenging for you. But here he does delay until the moment and hour of the Passover, which is key. And that's consistent between all four Gospels, is that, um, is that Jesus is your Passover lamb, he is your Paschal feast, which is the Greek word for Passover, Pascha, right? All right. 
Uh, and then wherever this Ephraim is, it's not so important. All right. So, speaking of Passover, here we go. 55. You want to read through the end of the chapter? All right. Uh, this is again a, a, a unique feature to John, is that both with Jesus and also um, with the, the mention of the Passover, we don't just jump in on at the beginning of the Passover week on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. Um, there's, there's this time of preparation where people show up a little bit early and um, they purify themselves. This would be akin, um, this would be akin to folks come, getting to church, you know, a half hour early and they can't do it because we have Bible study in here, but, you know, to sit and to pray and, in a sense, to purify themselves, to confess their sins privately to themselves. They'll con confess it corporately as a congregation, um, to, to meditate upon the readings that they're about to hear, you know, is to purify themselves. And that, it, in a sense, is to just to set aside everything um, that is distracting them from, from what, is, um, what the Lord is about to do for them here in divine service. And they're doing the same thing. But notice that it's many from uh, the country in Jer to Jerusalem. So all the people that Jesus has ministered to, all these who knew of him, are now, they're all, you know, again, he's drawing the whole world into Jerusalem, and it's going to be this, what do you want to say, pressure cooker. <laughs> there's going to be, there's pressure from the people for Jesus to, to show himself as the Messiah. There's going to be pressure, right, from the Jews to try to kill him. And then you've got, on top of all that, you have all this weighty, um, I mean, it's emotional, but it's also, you know, faith, you know, of, of the Passover and the sacrifice, the highest, the highest festival of the entire year. And so you've, you've got this strong religious fervor going on at the same time. That's with the palms and the branches and singing Hosanna, right? So that's all happening, and it's just, you know, so it's like this. And then, you know, supernova, I guess. <laughs> it all blows up uh, in a good way. Notice what they're saying to one another. They're looking for Jesus. I mean, they fully expect him to show up. So, I mean, all indications has been, as John has been telling the story, is that, you know, tensions are rising. Jesus is doing more and more impressive things. I just thought of, thought of this. Ooh, I wonder, I wonder, I think John's gospel is structured according to Ah, see, I don't know. I have to think this through. According to the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, I think it maps out, actually, because daily bread and the feeding of the 5,000 is in chapter 6. So this first part, deliver us from evil, being the last petition in Lazarus's resurrection. Ooh, I have to think about that some more. That's interesting. Huh, a narrative confession of the Lord's Prayer. Okay, I'll... Sounds like a fun paper to write someday when I have no time on, or I have too much time on my hands. All right. <laughs> what were we talking about? I got distracted. Oh, yes. What do you think? Will he come to the feast at all? All right. And the chief priests and Pharisees are asking. They're recognizing. They're looking. They're watching. All right. So you have all this tension. People are watching. The Pharisees are watching. When's he going to show up? Now, this is different than back in, um, what was that, chapter 7? 
Is that right? Where he didn't quite show up on time? No. Chapter... Yeah, it is chapter 7. You know, where he comes to the feast late <laughs> and he just shows up. Um, here, he's going to actually show up early. And we really want to look at that, which is the next bit. All right. So, let's read 12, 1 through 8, which gets us to the triumphal entry, which we'll, we'll start next week, which is fitting for us to start in Lent. Okay. Let's read this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who climbed the bed table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Jesus Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of my day, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have with you. All right, this is the best stewardship text ever. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm actually not kidding. Um, I am kind of kidding because you look at it and you're like, what? So Judas, Judas is the typical, these, these, Judas and, and, and Mary are set in opposition to one another. Right? They clearly have the op, totally opposite approach to, uh, to their love for Jesus and their sacrifice for him. All right? Um, Judas is, uh, is, the, is the counter. Right? Everything's got to be line everything up, because he's the money guy. And of course, John tells us, by the way, yeah, he wasn't so good at it. Um, he's basically the tax collector among the, <laughs> among, among the disciples. Uh, John is unique in this in indicating that Judas has been, had a been, been about thieving for a long time. All right, this is, and Jesus has known about it the whole time, too, and he just suffers it, which is interesting. Um, whereas the, the other Gospels seem like Judas that it's actually um, that Judas's heart is given over to the devil, and then that's what leads him to betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Um, here, it's like, that's actually Judas's character. You know, his faith is going to go to the, whoever rewards him, basically. Now, Mary, on the other hand, she wasn't a big part of the, the story back with Lazarus, right? It was all Martha. And then Mary, Martha goes and gets Mary, and Mary just comes and says the same thing that Martha said which is different than the Synoptic Gospels, which we have the story in, in the room where Mary and Martha are, you know, uh, Mary's the one who serves the Lord, and then Martha is the one who's back working in the, in the kitchen and gets upset. Why isn't she helping me out, get everything ready? Um, this is probably, you know, this is possible that this is actually the same feast as that one that you're familiar with, um, but it has a totally different purpose as being told here. So now Jesus comes back, and you've got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? And they're offering him a feast, which I would suggest is actually, um, you know, in thanksgiving for what God had given. Now Lazarus has had a chance to kind of clean himself up a little bit. It's been a while. I mean, I don't know how long. John doesn't really seem to care. Uh, it's just now it's Passover. But notice that it's six days before the Passover. So like he had just told us, there are a lot of people that have come to Jerusalem early, you know, in hopes that maybe they can get a front row seat for what Jesus is about to do, I would suggest, because they're looking for him. 
Um, and so this is, I mean, this, for some reason, this, this Passover, people are already anticipating this is going to be a big Passover. You know, this is going to be that, the Super Bowl to end Super Bowls or something. <laughs> so um, they gave a dinner. Martha served. Lazarus was the one reclining at table. Now that part's the same. Martha's serving, right? But there's not a big emphasis on the Martha, Martha, you know, she's doing a good thing for me, that whole bit that you have in the other Gospels. Here, it's all on Mary in contrast to Judas. Mary took a pound, and that's a, that's a Roman pound, by the way. Probably if I roll over this note, it's going to tell me that. Yeah, a litre, a Roman pound, which was equal to 11 and a half ounces, or 30, 327 grams. Have you ever bought essential oil? Anybody know? Anne does an essential oil thing. We have a whole bunch of it in our house. We get like a little thing that's like one ounce, and it's, it's like some outrageous amount of money to get like an ounce of essential oil. This is like 12 ounces. This is a big bottle of a, actually a rare plant, this exotic nard plant. Um, so it has, it's kind of like, you know, like an aloe. Think about how many aloe leaves it would take to get 12 ounces of aloe, just pure aloe. And, that, and this is even more rare than that. So he says it's worth, Judas tells us it's worth 300 denarii. So a year's worth of labor, $30,000 or something, $40,000, who knows, right? Whatever equivalent would be for you. And what does she do with it? <laughs> she pours it on his feet. And then she wipes it off. Usually when you put ointment on somebody or something, um, you don't wipe it off. You keep it on. But she even wipes it off, which is, uh, it makes it even more wasteful. You know, because when you anoint something, you, let, you let, leave it there. Like, I, you know, I, there's oil in my beard. And you leave it in your beard so that it actually moisturizes and keeps your beard healthy, right? Well, why would she wipe it off? Did I give you a note about that? 12 ounces. Deep reverence and humility is striking, but even more so how she wipes the anointing off. She realizes the profundity of her act of adoration. I just had to use a big word there. I'm sorry. Profundity. It's profound. Her act of faith and love filled the whole house, and the fragrance of her love would continue to spread through the preaching of the gospel to the world, right? Which he tells you in the other gospels, is that, you know, this account will be told of her every time this gospel is preached. But here, I, maybe that's exactly what happened. She poured it, and then she realizes, what have I done, right? I mean, this is... And so then she wipe, tries to wipe it up with her hair. And just in order to do that, you've seen the paintings. I mean, she has to be in, a deep, in the deepest position of humility where she's down on her knees, and she has her head to the ground, right? So, I mean, what, what love to show for Jesus. And, and it's a love that's in response or in thanksgiving for the gift of life that he gave back to, to her brother, Lazarus, right? Um, I said it's a great stewardship text because um, the problem with people who start counting money is then they, then they, they it, <laughs> if you hold on to your money too tightly, Jesus refers to it this way, um, it actually ends up being a curse to you. Luther says it, you know, that I'm using my hands here, he says that we hold everything with the, with the dead hand of faith, meaning we have to, have, we have to keep our fingers spread so that we don't hold on to it too tightly and we can let, we're willing to let it go. If everything is about counting and keeping it in the bag and, and not wasting it, um, you actually will be so, you'll, you'll end up being like a, sorry, stereotypical German. <laughs> um, I told you the story about um, 
my vicarage congregation, the, the, uh, the spinster who inherited the farm. She had never married. And, uh, you know, the pastor asked, you know, what's going on with this? And, and she's like, well, I haven't really thought about it. And, like, you're dying, so maybe you should, like, have a will and, you know, plan your estate. And she ended up um, endowing the whole shooting match to the congregation. So she had no, she had no heirs, and she wanted it to go to the work of the church, which is beautiful. So he looks at the farm. I mean, I don't know. It was 80 acres, 100 acres. It was, it was over a million-dollar valuation, right? He's like, wow, that's great. It turns out that she never spent any money except for non-essentials. She had 30 bank accounts. She had money in the walls and in the mattress and the drawers. She gave money to the church, of course, but so it ended up the estate was like $2.4 million. <laughs> Just insane. It's like, I mean, wouldn't it have been fun? I mean, she did have fun with it at the very end, right? She just said, it's all yours, church, you know. And they endowed their school, and it's been a beautiful thing. Um, but it, I think it would have been fun to kind of enjoy it, you know, when you were living. It wasn't important. Well, maybe that's what it was for her. That's true. Yeah. If you're going to spend money, I say you should enjoy spending it. And not, it it's not a burden. It's actually, it's actually a, it should be a joy. Because it was a gift to you from God to be enjoyed, to be used. Right? Even if it means paying the electric bill. He's like, we have light. <laughs> At night. That's, that's a gift, isn't it? Yeah, we had to pay for it, but God gave us the funds. Okay. And Judas is all just, he's so caught up in money that now he's just, a, he's, a, he's greedy, actually, as a result of his love of money, coveting, actually. So, just an a, interesting side note on that. Um, but notice what he says at the end here. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. Uh, by the way, is Judas going to give it to the poor? John tells you he doesn't actually care about the poor. Right? And that's always the thing with the poor, right? People say, well, I'm not going to give him any money because he's just going to go buy alcohol. All right? That's not on you. <laughs> you don't get to control other people and how they use the gift that you give them. You give it to them as a gift, and you step back. Right? Grandparents learn this. You give the kids the gift, and then they... My grandmother always would come and make sure we had it on display. She would give us something, and then if, if we didn't like, if, the next time we saw her, it was like, are you using it? If you're not, I'll take it back, and I'll return it to the store. And you're like, just calm down. May she rest in peace. Every, no, she, that she took it back? No, we were very, no, we always, we put it out, we showed that it had been played with, we made sure it was out of the box, whatever. The thing is up on the wall, even if it was ugly as sin. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to play the game. Or we played the game, I should say. Yeah, we totally played the game. It wasn't worth the argument. Um, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So here Jesus is um, he's setting up this priority for the people of God. And Mary, Mary is the exemplar of this priority where... Jesus comes first. Now, everything we have is a gift from God, so that shouldn't be hard for us to return it to him um, for his benefit, for his purpose. Um, but I think we can see this not in his, just in terms of finances. As the story is talking about. It, did it go out again? Oh. Antennas. Um, we also, you know, we see it into our whole life. You know, where does, where does the faith um, that God has given and the preservation of that faith and the ways that God has promised to preserve that faith, is that our first priority? Now, I'm preaching to the choir here. You're here for Bible study, right? 
And so you're taking advantage of all the ways that God has um, given to you to, to hear and to study his word. Um, but not everybody does. And, uh, you know, you've probably, and I've encountered this, you know of folks that are like, well, I need to make sure I show up at church, you know, a couple times a year so that they keep me on the rolls. And like, it's not a very healthy way of looking at what God gives in his son, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not a matter of obligation and keeping the duty. It's, it's all gift. It's there for you to receive. Even love, even obedience is a gift because it, it goes well with you and you will live long on the earth, you know, if you receive God's word of law as a gift to you as well. Not just to show you your sin, but to guide you in the way you should go. Um, this other statement, he says, she may keep it um, for the day of my burial. Anybody have a different translation of, of that verse? Verse uh, 7. Ron, you've got a different translation. What does it say here? Leave her alone. Um, it, is, it was intended that she should save this yeah, there you go. Intended. And that's a footnote here on the ESV. That she may leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. It's kind of a, it's kind of a little bit of a veiled statement. It's not entirely direct. But um, to keep, we've had this language, you know, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, guess what ESV did? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now that has a very different connotation, doesn't it? Because when we hear obedience, what do we hear? Right? But blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it means to hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it, right? As Luther would say in the third, with the third commandment, right? So that, he, that she may keep it for the day of my burial, that what, what she is doing how do I explain it down here? He's speaking with double meaning. I'll just read what I wrote, because I probably can say it better here if I just read it. This banquet, this feast, is the climax of Jesus' own revelation and ministry to this family, so Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. At the same time, as we heard back earlier in chapter 11, these are the last of the 12 hours. Remember, working while it is yet day? He speaks of Judas' secret betrayal, but also his own burial. Above all, the end is approaching, and he makes it vivid and real to those with him. And for Judas, the darkness approaches, and his glory will depart from him. His death is the unique and controlling event of the church's faith, a breaking point between faith and unbelief. Right? So what is she confessing? Whether she knows it or not isn't the point. She is, she is confessing that his suffering and death and burial is her salvation. Right? Right? And so, and she, she <laughs> uniquely here um, is the one who, who actually, we, we just had the, the, the Sanhedrin say that they, that they were seeking to kill him from that, from that day, right? We heard that from John. And now we have, we have Mary actually anoint him and prepare him for his burial, which implies that he will die, right? Yeah. And so this is the thing about Jesus' death. It can be received as a curse which it will be to, to the Sanhedrin, but it can also be received as, as she does, as a joy. That he will die, but he will on the third day rise again. Right? Hi, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, anybody have a, any other thoughts on that verse? I mean, it is kind of a little odd, yeah. It's just interesting. Part of all the 
Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think I made a note about that. Is that, that I mean, the perfume of Jesus' suffering and death for the sins of the world, it, it does fill the earth, right? Um, Jesus, or excuse me, the psalmist refers, you know, to the way that, that our prayers and the sacrifices were, were sweet-smelling incense to God and they went up to God, they go up to God when we pray, that our prayers are, are like a sweet incense that, that pleases God, the smell of it pleases Him, right? We don't do a lot with smell in our church anymore because people with their allergies and other things, but, you know, um, historically we did. We, we would demonstrate tangibly what God says our prayers are like. And of course, the, the tabernacle, you know, the sacrifices were done outside and the smoke went up. It wasn't contained in a building. <laughs> same, same thing in the temple. The outer court is where they made the sacrifices. So you didn't have the smoke contained in it to a building. But, but the, the smell of it would, would uh, you know, stimulate this memory of, of, of a sweet sacrifice, a sacrifice for sin. Yeah. Like the light piercing the darkness, too. Right, and we have this with, with Mary and Lazarus, that Lazarus is obviously in the dark, and he, or he's being drawn into the dark by the devil, and then um, and Mary is coming into the light because she's sitting at the pre- in the presence of Jesus. Yeah. So what a beautiful way to lead us into the, um, into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the Passover with this preparation six days before. All right. Part in the Lord's peace. We'll see you here for service. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org. That's stjohnrandomlake.org slash support and give today.